Thank you for joining me on this episode of Proudly Differently Abled. Earlier on in my initial podcast, I had mentioned that one of the reasons I was doing these was for the parents. And the more thought that I've given to it is that a parent's perspective is paramount to what I'm trying to do. So with that in mind, I'm going to be interviewing my parents so they can give you a perspective of what it is like to be the parent of a child who is differently abled. During this episode, we will be discussing our birth, my brothers and I, and the first couple years of our lives. I'm going to start with my father, Richard Varchetto. Hi. You know, you spend your whole life dreaming about what it's going to be like to have a child. What it's going to be like in, my, in this particular situation to have a son. In this case, I knew that twins were on the way. And we sort of knew that they were both boys. On May 23rd, 1983, my wife woke me up and said that she was having pressure. So I started timing um, what turned out to be contractions. Um, At some point they became fast enough that we called the doctor doctor's office or the hospital, I'm not sure which it was, but anyway, they said, you need to go to the hospital. I said, well, that's impossible. It's, it's, they're not even due for, they're only 26 weeks. This, this is crazy. And they said, well, you better come. So I wasn't really worried because they figured, oh, it's just a false alarm. We'll come back home tonight. So one of my greatest regrets about that night was I stopped and I was still smoking. Then I stopped on the way to the hospital, bought a pack of cigarettes. By the time we got to the hospital, they rolled my wife into the to the examining room and she was already dilated to 10. And um, so they were trying to find my wife's doctor, who it turns out had had uh, hernia surgery. And uh, he, was, he was running into the room to, to, anyway, he examined my wife. And he said to me, come on, I'll go outside. Um, and he said to me, he said, look, um, there's, if, if we allow the twins to come by natural birth, there's probably no way they're going to live. Um, even if we have a C-section, they may not make it. In fact, they probably, there's a very good chance they won't make it, even if we do a C-section right now. So we need to decide what you want to do. Do you want to have a C-section or do you want to have natural birth? And I said to the doctor, just go in and tell my wife what you just told me and I guarantee you we're going to have a C-section because she will do everything and anything to keep these boys alive. So we went in and told my wife and of course she said, she said what I thought she was going to say. And the doctor came back out and said, hey, we need to go. So we ran, literally ran down the hall to where the, this room where doctors get ready. I mean, I'd never been in one before. And he said, I don't suppose there's any point in telling you you can't come in the room. And I said, no, there's no point. I'm coming in the room. So we scrubbed up and we put all this junk on, you know, safety, you know, stuff. But what doctors put on in the operating rooms. And we ran back down the hall to the, uh, what turned out to be the operating room. And uh, so... There was my wife, she was being, um, she was intubated 
and she was be, not intubated, but she was uh, getting um, the anesthetic or whatever it is that they give her to, uh, so she didn't feel anything. And um, I was sort of nervous about that. Um, anyway, so he, the, he proceeded to open up my wife, and I tell you, it's a, it's a, it's an eye-opening experience. But at any rate, um, he, Michael, Michael came out first, um, and t- a doctor and a nurse grabbed him and took him to a to a, a little bed for <coughs> infants, newborns, and then Matthew came out, and the t- doctor and a nurse took them, took what turned out to be Matthew to another place. So there's, 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 there's a doctor and two nurses taking care of my wife, a doctor and a nurse taking care of Michael, a doctor and a nurse taking care of Matthew. And, um, I'm running like in a circle saying, how's, how's he, how's he, how's she, how's he, it was, it was, it was like a war zone in there. And, uh, um, they took they took the boys into the neonatal intensive care unit, and they took my wife to the recovery room. And I was standing outside of the neonatal intensive care unit, looking at my two boys, and I was ecstatically excited and happy that I had two sons. And I really had absolutely no idea what I had just gotten into, and what it was going to take to get through the next couple of years. So at some point after uh, the boys got into the neonatal intensive care unit, um, the uh, neonatologist uh, who was in charge of the whole unit came out to speak with me. And uh, she told me that uh, the next 72 hours were crucial, that um, if they made it through the next 72 hours, that it was likely that they might make it through the next 72 hours. But she said in all likelihood, or it was possible that neither of them would make it or one of them wouldn't make it. And um, that's when it sort of struck home to me that this was not at all <laughs> what I had expected or hoped for or thought was going to happen when I had a son, and for that matter, two sons. So, um, Time went on and, and, and they did make it through the 72 hours and it became apparent that they, they needed lots of blood. So we started a blood drive. I think we, we in, the, in the course of the time that they were in the hospital before they came home, we probably got 100 um, pints of blood donated. Um, I probably gave 10 myself. Um, and... Um, at a time, because Michael was more seriously, at least temporarily more seriously ill than Matthew, we had to transfer him to a different hospital. So now we had one son in one hospital and another son in another hospital. And I was trying to work, so I would get up in the morning and go see one son in one hospital, go see another son in the hospital, go to work. After I got off of work, I would go see one son in a hospital, one see another hospital get home at 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning and and uh, take a couple hours sleep and just start all over. And so after after about a month or maybe a month and a half, I can't remember exactly how long it was of that, you know, we went to the people at uh, 
Michael had been transferred to children. So I said, hey, you know, we need to get these two boys in the same place. We need to transfer Matthew to children's. We can't take this. Actually, it was probably shorter than that, but, you know, it's hard to remember. It's a long time ago. Anyway, we transferred. We couldn't stand having them in two places. So we got Matthew transferred there. So they were both in the same neonatal intensive care unit. While they were there, both of them had surgeries. Both of them had lots of problems. Both of them had, I can't even tell you the complications. Um, At some point, shortly after we got both of them in the hospital, the doctor, we referred to him as Dr. Death, came to us and said, we need to speak. And um, he said that based on certain tests and his evaluation that that perhaps the boys would uh, never really have a meaningful life, that they would turn out to be vegetables. And he didn't, I don't know if he used that word, but that's the word that stuck in my mind. And, and I was like, no, no, you're wrong. They're, they're not like that. They know, they recognize me, they recognize my wife. Their heartbeats increase. They, 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 they know that we're there. And we were doing all sorts of things. We were playing music for them, bringing in smells, changing their sheets with different colors. Um, we, were, we were doing everything in po- our possible to, 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 to make them feel like they were in a home because they were in a white room with white sheets. And it wasn't an incubator with um, wrapping paper. Um, we would buy different wrapping papers and then we went to a store and bought all kinds of uh, material and made sheets of all different kinds of every, you know, velvet and silk and cotton and corduroy and all sorts of colors um, so that they could, they could feel like they were, you know, not in a sterile environment that they were trapped in. And we had uh, sounds. We would, we would, um, I recorded like three or four. I read like maybe, maybe five books and I put them on tape. So at night they would, we would play the books and then we had um, play music. Um, Michael Jackson's Thriller was the real um, big thing at that time. And so we would play that. They love that. To this day, they love that album. Anyway, so um, the doctor had come to us and said um, that they that, that they were they were they might not have any meaningful life that they would wouldn't be able to walk they wouldn't be able to talk they wouldn't do anything um, and and my wife and I just couldn't accept that as being the truth so we uh, we spoke to a couple of other doctors and we finally decided no we weren't. They wanted to actually turn the machines off. And we, we finally just, you know, we told the doctor, look, that's not going to happen. We're, they're fine. They're going to be fine. And, and, and maybe uh, fine was a overstatement because it was a long, long road. But um, they finally, had, they were born, just so you know, they were, they didn't weigh four pounds together. Um, they were, they were, they didn't come home. Michael came home on what would have been his due date. And Matthew, um, as it turns out, couldn't get off the oxygen and couldn't leave. So he stayed for two to four more, it's two or three or four more weeks before he came home. Um, and in the course of their first two years on the planet, the medical bills were 
$6 million. And um, needless to say, we had very, very, we didn't have a lifetime limit on our insurance, thank the Lord. And, and uh, But even 20% of $6 million is a lot of money. It took, it took us till 1993 to pay for the boys. Birth, the first couple of years of their birth. Uh, anyway, that's not the important part of this. Uh, the important part is that we, that we, my wife and I decided that we were going to do everything we could to give them as much choice and have as much chances in life as they could. We weren't going to allow them to say the word, I can't. And um, we never did. And uh, they can't, you know, they've, they've now uh, come home I mean, they came out there. They're they're very successful young men, both of them, and um, we're quite proud of them. The beginning was uh, rough, and, and we went through. Michael uh, has CP. Uh, he it's called. Uh, he's a left-sided hemi, which means the left side of his body was paralyzed because he had a bleed. It's, it's a thing that happens because you're born too early, and the and the vessels and veins in your brain aren't fully developed so the pressure of being born and the shock of being born causes causes bleeds and and that in his case affected the right part of his brain which affects the left side of a person's body so um uh so he 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 was he was you know had pa- pa- paraly- he was paralyzed on the left side of his body, and he didn't have the same ability to find motor, and you know, even even not find motor. But um, so we had years and years and years and years of therapy just to get him. If you met him today, you wouldn't even know that he had cerebral palsy. You wouldn't be able to tell because um, he came through it like a unbelievably well, and um, I'm so proud of him. Um, but. Uh, it was it's 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 so it's 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 so hard to describe what it's like because you have all these hopes and aspirations when 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 you know you're going to have a baby and and you figure okay I'm going to have a baby you know and he's going to come out and he's going to have you know all his parts and he's going to be fine and he's going to grow up and but then this kind of thing happens and 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 um I have to give my wife the most credit for, for, for all of this because shortly after they were born, I stopped listening to the doctors and I started listening to my wife's gut and anything. If she said, this is what we should do, that's what we did. And it always worked out for all this time, even till now. But um, you have to stay together. It's hard to stay together. We saw a lot of babies die in that neonatal intensive care unit while they were in there. And we saw a lot of babies die because the parents just stopped coming. I just gave up on them. You can't do that. You have to you have to love your children and, and give them everything you can and make sure they succeed. Anyway, I'm I'm not taking any credit, but Michael Michael deserves the credit. He's a fine young man and he's done a great job. And now I'm going to bring in my mother, Janet Varshado, for her perspective on that time in my life. Hi everyone, this is Jan Varchetto, Michael's mom, and um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get through this story very easily, but I'm going to try and give it my best. 
Um, it was needless to say a very difficult time for us as a family. A year prior to the birth of my twins, my husband and I lost a child at term. So this overwhelming sense of dread was driving with us to the hospital. That night was probably one of the worst nights, one of the most terrifying nights, and one of the best nights of my life all at the same time. I had just not been feeling well that day and had a a sense that things were not right and that um, I needed to get in touch with the doctor to let him know that um, I was feeling some strange pressure that was going on. All at the same time, I was thinking in my mind, don't be ridiculous. This is just preterm labor. You're fine. Everything's going to be okay. You know, don't be a baby. So that was all going on at the same time that I was trying to convince myself that I needed to do something about what was going on. I finally did call the doctor who told me to get to the hospital as soon as possible We arrived at the hospital, oh my gosh, it was the middle of the night. And when we got there, the nurse said to me, don't worry, honey, whatever's going on, if something is going on, we're going to stop it and you'll be okay. So just don't worry. And then a little bit later, they put me in the bed and they examined me and told me that I was fully dilated. They put my head down and my feet up in the bed, tilted the bed, and then told me they were going to look into airlifting me to another hospital um, where they might be better able to take care of premature babies. While I was waiting for them to make decisions and determine what they were going to do, one of the residents had come in and they had fetal monitors on me. And I said to him, do you have two heartbeats? And he said, yes, I do. And I looked at him and I said, what are their chances? And he just looked at me and shook his head side to side and said, there really isn't a chance. And then he left. And so this is sort of the mindset that I went into the delivery room with. Eventually, they came back and told me that I was too advanced and they could not move me, uh, that I was going to have to deliver these babies. There was nothing they could do to stop it. So I remember saying to them, we were in a hospital, it was a Catholic hospital, saying I wanted a priest and I wanted my babies baptized when they were born. And I said to my husband, first one that comes out gets the name Michael, and the next one gets the name Matthew, because I knew they were going to put me to sleep, and I wasn't going to be awake um, to be able to experience it the way I had anticipated I would. So that night, um, really, 
I don't have a memory of what went on because obviously I was asleep and I had to go on what I was told. Um, But I do know that I just kept thinking to myself, this is all my fault. If I had done things differently, if I had maybe not picked this up or not done you know, something else I had done throughout the course of the day, maybe we wouldn't, the three of us, be in this situation. The next day, when I was more awake, they wheeled me down to see my sons. They were in the neonatal intensive care unit, Michael and Matthew entered the world 14 weeks too soon. They weighed in at a whopping 2 pounds, 2 ounces, and 14 inches long, and Matthew weighing in at 1 pound, 13 ounces, and 12 inches long. They weren't able to breathe on their own, and when I got to see them, they were connected to more machines than I knew could ever exist um, with lights flashing and beeping and all sorts of things going on around them that was so unexpected and so unnatural in terms of what I had envisioned in my mind when I found out I was going to have twins. I envisioned what any new mother does, and that's having a baby swaddled in a blanket and able to look at them and talk to them. And I couldn't do any of those things. They couldn't be held. Their arms were strapped down. They were on ventilators. Um, It was a very, very, very difficult thing to see. Um, While I knew that they were doing the best they could at the hospital to save their lives, just seeing your tiny infants going through what you know has to be a very painful experience um, was just overwhelming to me. And again, I just kept thinking, what is it that I did to make this happen? How did I not know? What was I supposed to do differently to make this be more normal and what I expected it to be? As time went on, The news, you know, sometimes was good and sometimes was not so good. I do remember one evening um, being in the neonatal unit and standing over Michael and watching him breathe and his chest go up and down with this ventilator that was breathing for him. And I just noticed, and I don't know why, I have obviously no medical training, but just my motherly instincts, Notice that one side of his chest was not doing what the other side of his chest was doing. And I brought attention to that, um, talked to the nurse, talked to the doctors who assured me that it was all fine um, and that they were well aware of what was going on. And so I left and went back to my room because um, they wouldn't let me stay too, too long. And probably a couple hours later, they came in to tell me that Michael had had something called a pneumothorax um, and that that side of his his chest 
on that side, he had blown a hole through his lung and he had a chest tube in. Um, and so they didn't really expect him to survive that. But being the hard-headed young man that he is, he did survive that night. And um, shortly after that, they told us that they felt that they needed to move him to a different hospital because um, things were getting progressively worse for him. So while we waited a little bit more for him uh, to get in a better situation, they decided to take him over to um, a children's hospital nearby, leaving his brother, Matthew, in a different hospital. And that went on for about a week, two weeks, until finally they did move the boys um, to the same hospital and we were able to be in the nursery but they were not in the same area of course they were one on one side of the unit and one on the other um, so the boys at this point had not been able to be together either once they arrived there a variety of things started to go on there as well um, Michael in particular we were told had had a bleed he had developed hydrocephalus, and they described it as being a um, grade 3 bleed. At the time, they were telling us that grade 4 was the most severe. And it's at that time that the doctors called us into a different room and told us that babies that had that level of bleed um, were likely never to walk, never to talk, and never to live a normal life. And that their suggestion at that time is that we give consideration to perhaps turning off life support for the boys. At the same time, Matthew was having similar issues, had a bleed, a very minor bleed, um, but a bleed nonetheless. He was on much higher levels of oxygen, which eventually um, caused blindness in one of his eyes and very low vision in the other. Um, but there was just always this sense that I had when I looked in the faces of my two little boys that we were going to get through this. One way or another, we were going to get through this. And that life might just not be as bad as they were telling us. Um, and that is really how we decided to proceed and forge ahead with doing what we did to make sure that all opportunities were provided to Michael and Matthew, no matter what. Because my feeling was that I might be disappointed along this journey. But there certainly couldn't be anything worse than my child looking at me much later in life and saying, but mom, why didn't you ever try? We had decided, um, or I should say I had decided, that once Michael and Matthew were walking, I was going to bring them back to visit 
the doctor who had given us the information about perhaps considering stopping life support. We fondly referred to this doctor as Dr. Death. So I had put it in my mind that when, not if, but when Michael and Matthew did in fact walk, I was going to bring them back so that Dr. Death could actually meet them. So fast forward to, let's see, Matthew walked at 16 months and Michael walked at 22 months. Immediately after that, I called the neonatal unit and asked to have an appointment with Dr. Death and told them I wanted to bring the boys back for a visit. And so off we went to the hospital, walking in together, one boy on each side. And we met with the doctor. And I looked at him and said, I want you to know, you may not remember us because I'm sure you've seen many, many families of many, many children in the last two years. But I came back for a specific purpose today. I know that at the time you told me what the statistics were saying to you, thinking that you were going to probably help me understand what my future might look like. But what I need you to understand is that those statistics were incorrect. And my sons are here today, both walking, both talking, and both looking just like any other child. And I want you and I need you to understand that when you take a parent's hope away, you take a child's chance away. And that is not your job. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of Proudly Differently Abled. I wanted to address some things, um, sort of my take on the story that you just heard from my parents' perspective and sort of how it made me feel and uh, the way it's changed for me probably over the years really and what different effects it's had for me. You know, when I was a young kid in, you know, grade school, junior high, it's just the story of how... I was born. You don't really think much about it. And as I got older, into high school, into high school, into college, I sort of, I really owned it because I understood more about what happened to me and what, because of what happened to me, that resulted in my life experience the way that it was. And some of that I took solace and it made a lot more sense to me. And I guess in a lot of ways, it really hit home for me when I became a father myself. Because much like my parents, I had the same fears that they did, that every parent really does when they find out they're going to have a child. But for me, mine were a little more pointed in, in some ways, more specific. I was worried that possibly because of my own traumatic birth 
maybe my son would suffer the same experiences. Or, and I still worry about this to this day, maybe because I'm dyslexic and it is a genetic thing, he could end up with it. And not that I would change my own experiences for anything, but some of what I went through, even being dyslexic, is, is not something I want my son to have to go through. And I would, much like my own parents, do anything to spare him some of the things that I went through as a kid. The other thing I, I really need to say right now is a, a thank you to my parents, not only for the interviews they gave during this episode, but for everything they've done for me throughout my life, for giving me the drive and the stubbornness that I have, for passing that down to me, for never letting me say, I can't, or letting me believe that there was something if I wanted to do that I couldn't do. What they did for me throughout, or have done for me throughout my entire life, has made me the man I am today. And I can't thank them enough. Uh, I also wanted to thank all of you, the listeners out there, who have found me and have been able to listen to my story and, and take something from it positively about someone with who is differently abled or apply it to your own lives. Please continue to do that because truthfully that is why I am doing these. Thank you so much. Join me next time when I go into my early years of schooling, grammar school, junior high, and those fun formative years.